It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Well, it comes up every once in a while, uh, that lovely Aquarius debate about stuff like scavengers. It's sort of a polarizing thing filled with lots of opinions and dissenting views. Now, the other day, a hobbyist asked me to join in on a vigorous group discussion about the best scavenger for botanical-style aquariums. I love that these discussions are going on. I was in a forum I'd never even been to, so that was kind of cool. And of course, I kind of stayed out to it, but we were off to the races on this one. Now, first off, I believe that the idea of a scavenger fish in our botanical-style aquariums is outmoded, incorrect, and frankly irrelevant. Yes, I feel that way. Uh, because every single fish in a properly set up botanical style aquarium spends a large part of its day just foraging in and among the botanicals for food sources. We talked about this. The microfauna and the small crustaceans and the algae and all that kind of stuff which make their home, they also feed off or utilize the abundant food available in a botanical style aquarium system. So the whole idea for the need for designated scavengers is really kind of silly in my humble opinion. These fishes are not scavenging off uneaten food and stuff like that. They're foraging among the botanicals, just like they do in nature, to supplement maybe the food which you provide them. One of the things that we as fish keepers seem to have to contend with is that decision between keeping fishes or other creatures that we in the aquarium world tend to view as utilitarian, i.e. intended to be kept for a specific purpose, like algae eating, for example or those which we want to keep for pure enjoyment, for interest, for breeding work, whatever. I call this the scavenger syndrome. You know, I love to come up with names for stuff. Now, nowhere is this more apparent than we focus on that old scourge of the hobbyists everywhere, so-called nuisance algae. The lovable, popular, and seemingly misperceived as disposable Otosynculus species, those little tiny catfish, it, it's pretty much the poster child for this phenomenon. They're comical, they're endearing fish that are really both myth misunderstood and they're shockingly disrespected in my opinion. They're not alone, of course. It's a shame that for whatever reason over the years, we've tended to keep heap a lot of small bottom-dwelling fishes into that category as scavengers or assign them the ridiculous moniker of cleanup crew or janitors or whatever we want to call them, simultaneously devaluing the fish and relegating them to an arbitrary algae-eating role in our tanks that's both undeserved and, quite frankly, often inappropriate. Now, sure, fishes like Otosynculus are about as good a consumer of algal films as they make, but to purchase this fish solely for this role not only commoditizes the fish, it feeds that perception that its sole purpose is to clean the tank. I'll say it one more time. These small, seemingly nondescript fish are actually quite fascinating and engaging and worthy of much more attention and respect than merely being regarded as a scavenger or cleanup crew by hobbyists. They're amazingly social fish with really interesting interactions and group dynamics that are enjoyable and really fascinating to watch. That is, if we're not adding them to our tanks for the sole purpose of cleaning up the mess. Notice I used the word the mess in air quotes. Well, you can't see that, but I'm air quoting the mess. Now, 
suppose, I suppose that, you know, the, t- the popular aquarium term catfished to the hobby at large over the decades probably instantly brought to mind a picture of a nondescript bottom-feeding scavenger fish patiently, you know, sifting through the, the substrate for uneaten food or algae, going about its business as members of its group has done for eons, blissfully unaware that this was the only shot at sustenance they're going to get. Nobody was going out of their way to target feed the scavengers, right? <sighs> okay, back to Otosinculus for a second. There's about 16 or so different species of these, uh, I think at the genus level anyway, and several of which find their way into the hobby on a regular basis. I'm sure others do just confusingly mislabels as Otosinculus. There's not a whole lot of species distinction uh, in the hobby for this species, unfortunately. Now, telling the individual species apart is challenging at best, so we just again, lump them together. Terrible, but that's what happens, and, and especially in needs of, uh, from the standpoint of needs and the care that there's required. And remarkably, when these things, when these fishes are offered uh, for sale in the aquarium trade, many unsuspecting neophyte hobbyists are advised to purchase, you know, one or two as inexpensive algae eaters for their new tanks or for their planted aquariums. And of course, being small, gregarious social creatures, they can be pretty shy when kept singly, and yet they just, you know, they display this amazing social interactions when you keep a group of, you know, six or more. Interestingly, their dietary preferences, you know, create a sort of a strange, I don't know, paradox for many hobbyists who treat them simply as humble algae eaters, you know, placed in the tank for the sole purpose of consuming unwanted algal films, which, by the way, they do an amazing job at. So they are, they're so good at consuming algae that in an aquarium without sufficient algae growth, a population of these fishes could literally eat themselves to death by consuming all the available natural food resource rapidly. That's why it's important, number one, not to keep too many in a small tank, and two, to understand that they can and will consume other foods like detritus and so forth and frozen brine shrimp and stuff like that. And number three, to make sure that food is made available to them. Now, because they're shy and retiring when you you know when you supplement their natural algae diet you need to make sure that the food reaches them and that the other tank inhabitants don't beat the crap out of them or at least scare them off while they're trying to get to the food and it may take a little more time but these little guys are certainly worth the attention it's an extra act of kindness that's certainly not misspent in my opinion now shy and retiring typically applies to them when they're new they'll often become far more comfortable and be out in the open much, much more when they've adapted to their new home. That's like a lot of fishes. And since they're readily found in groups in nature, we feel personally that keeping a small group of them in the aquarium helps to socialize them more quickly. I say we because me and maybe my friends that tend to be more enlightened in these kind of things. Um, that sounded arrogant, didn't it? But whatever. <laughs> anyway, as I just said, odos are really interesting fishes in and of themselves and should, in my opinion, be treated like any other fish in the aquarium. That is, you should accommodate their need for food by never adding them to an immature aquarium that doesn't have some algal growth present and some detritus and so forth, and making sure that they get their fair share of prepared, you know, aquarist-fed food as well. And obtaining food is really the main battle these fishes face, and quite honestly, it's the byproduct of poor handling along the chain of custody from capture to aquarist, which leads to weakened fish with pretty bad survival records further reinforcing the negative perception that they're somehow expendable creatures. And as a sort of confession, I know that for many years, my approach to keeping them was just totally wrong. These are, yes, relatively inexpensive fish, and that often brings out a very cavalier attitude about keeping them. Ironically, they have the reputation of being a bit touchy, not lasting for long periods of time in the aquarium for a lot of hobbyists, suddenly 
checking out for no apparent reason. This unfortunately has given them the undeserved title of expendable, you know, a fish that you just replace as needed, which is just awful, i.e. when the fish croaks. That's a horrible moniker for any animal, in my opinion. When we look into the way they're handled, their requirements and feeding habits and stuff like that, it becomes more apparent why they can go so quickly. First off, from a water standpoint, they're pretty adaptable fish environmentally. They they do come from the Amazon region, so they're typically at home in soft, neutral, slightly acidic water. Although, you know, pH and hardness are not super critical, stability, like, is important to them. But, like, that should be the goal for most aquariums containing fishes, you know, stability. But once again, I theorize that because we've assigned these fishes that unfortunate role of, you know, utility players, they're brought in to solve a problem, i.e. algae, and any specialized needs or just needs in general that they might have other than algae are simply viewed as secondary or if they're thought about at all. Oh, and the aquarium. Let's think about that for a second. I admit in my less experienced hobby days, I'd unleash a few of these guys in a relatively new, rather unstable aquarium as a preventative against algae outbreaks. I know I used to watch them busy and convincing myself that they were seemingly continuously you know, eating algae, even though I couldn't see it with the naked eye, when the reality is they were frantically looking for something, anything to sustain themselves. I was literally watching my Odos starve to death. And if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that a typical new aquarium seldom has any significant amounts of algae, right? And if it does, it could be handled by one of one or two of these guys if, if, you, if you're really using them for the purpose of, you know, algae control, which you shouldn't be. Uh, and it can be handled by one or two of them. And, and again, I included myself in this, you know, miserable uh, philosophy of using them to, to fight algae. And what will happen is a lot of times we'll offer, you know, we'll often add like one or two of them to uh, a package of fishes that we consider sort of necessary in our new tanks. And this brings up yet another strange problem to that approach. These fishes are pretty gregarious in nature, right? And since they occur in large groups with a dynamic social structure, it's kind of strange to keep one or two of them. So the weird sort of paradox here is that if you do keep them correctly, which is, you know, keeping six or more or whatever, where they're far more interesting, what happens is you don't have enough, if you don't have enough algae or other food sources available to them on a continuous basis, a group's simply going to eat itself to death faster as the algae are consumed unless you make an effort to supplement their diet with other foods. But we keep purchasing them for a role and nothing more. Or at least that's the way it's perceived in the hobby. Now, our good friend Mike Tuganardi, um, is a pretty well-respected author and a tropical fish importer, he'll be the first to tell you that these fishes suffer from that horrible commoditization, which tends to overtake many of these small-bottom-dwelling fishes in the hobby. To that end, he suggests that we all consider the challenges that the fish faces you know, on the way to us and understand that the extra steps that, in a perfect world, should be taken to assure that they remain healthy before they get to you. There's a little quote from Mike in a correspondence with me said, just takes a little TLC along the supply chain to keep these interesting and useful little fish happy and healthy. The primary issue with this fish is access to food. They tend to arrive half starved and weak, which usually traces back to the conditions they were held in immediately after collection. Sadly, some otosynculus in the trade may not be fed between that point and the time they reach a store, which can be a week or more. So they're often in, uh, in far from ideal conditions on arrival. So bottom line here, they need food. They need a continuous supply of food. They need to be fed directly in systems which don't have sufficient natural food production, i.e. algae, detritus, that kind of stuff. Okay, really, Scott? So now I have to target feed my Odos? Well, yeah. 
It makes sense, right? And if you think it's a pain in the ass to do this, you're right. Let's be honest, in a perfectly good community aquarium or an active community tank like many of us keep, have you ever been able to target feed a tiny catfish effectively and regularly, like, you know, it's suggested in the books? You have to spend a really significant amount of time trying to deliver food to these little guys, trying to beat out the more aggressive feeders, all the while hoping that these fishes will even show a remote interest in unfamiliar food items like pellets and stuff like that. Zucchini and spinach, all the stuff that's usually recommended. You know, and when they do approach them, they might, you know, kind of flit over them with active mouths. It's not the same thing as consuming them. It's really easy to delude ourselves that these fishes are deriving sustenance from some of this stuff. Much in the same way we're convinced that they're finding something in a new aquarium because they're so busy. Again, it's not all impossible, it, but it requires patience, observation, and a tiny bit of luck. Any of which you may not have or may not want to expend on these fishes, if you're honest with yourself. Now, gut content analysis of these fishes in the wild shows pretty much two things that they eat. Algae and the less defined but often mentioned organic matter, i.e. detritus, probably bound up in an algal matrix. So this is a clue that getting them to eat other foods is not going to be super easy. Not impossible, but certainly not the easiest thing you'll do. And if you take that unfortunate and widely held position that it's a role-playing fish destined you know, to be an algae-eating janitor, then you really have to be honest with yourself and consider if these fish are even for you. Yet, here's the good news. As we've discussed hundreds of times here, the botanical-style aquarium, when properly set up and operating and not edited by siphoning everything out, provides a near-continuous supply of organic detritus as well as some algal films and fungal growths and so forth, which are not unusual in this type of aquarium. Perfect for these guys, assuming they're not getting out-competed for it. Personally, I feel that these fishes should simply not be thought of as cleanup crews, period. If you have an algae problem in your aquarium, you need to explore and embrace, you know, more advanced nutrient control and export techniques to stop it, or at least eliminate it at the source, and the least popular method to control it, manual removal. We really need to rethink our relationship with these little guys. Like so many things in our hobby, it involves a mental shift, a realignment of our perceptions, and sort of a greater appreciation for the needs and challenges of these amazing animals that we treasure so much. So please, next time you're thinking about purchasing one or more of these guys for the sole purpose of being algae eaters in your high-concept planet aquarium or whatever, consider their needs. And if you aren't convinced that this is worthwhile, I really implore you to consider honing your algae scraping skills instead and just leaving these little guys to the care of someone who appreciates them for far more than just utility. It's tough love, yes, I get it. We've simply not kept this fish in a fair manner for many years, in my opinion. Yes, they are com amazing consumers of algae. I've literally seen a pair of them strip a 20-gallon tank with modest algae growth completely in like 48 hours, and then the struggle to survive begins until the algae returns, unless we try to feed them, which is hardly a life for an animal that seems to fare wonderfully well in the wild. I think we lean a bit too much on various animals to perform some of these roles that we need to have a better grasp of ourselves. This is in stark contrast to setting up an aquarium which accommodates the specific needs of certain fishes or animals. It's a pretty common thing in the reef aquarium world. And you'll see vendors, you know, selling packages of snails and crabs and shrimp and starfishes as quote-unquote cleanup crews, which I hate hearing that term. You know, at first it seems innocent and even useful, but beneath the, you know, shiny, cute veneer, it's actually kind of dark and sad. 
hobbyists consider these animals sort of disposable and a, a temporary commodity, using them for their cleaning services until there's no more algae or detritus or uneaten food or whatever in the tank. And then if they live, great. If they perish, well, we can always get more, right? Yuck. The commoditization of life forms for our tank maintenance, that's just awesome, isn't it? It's horrible. Yep, I see this in the reef world all the time. Recommendations for large numbers of animals like brittle stars and various snails to handle detritus. You know how I feel about detritus. One of the big problems I have with some of the more traditional detritivorous, detritivores or detritivorous, boy, I'm having trouble today, uh, cleanup crew members is that they're often animals that consume detritus as part of their diet. And they make a greater part of their diet, the micro and macro fauna, in the sand that you're so carefully trying to cultivate for your biodiversity and nutrient export purposes in your reef tank. They do a really good job at this. <laughs> Oops. So to make matters worse, hobbyists are often advised to keep, you know, stupidly large numbers of these guys in their reef aquariums, which assures not only will they decimate the beneficial in fauna, but they'll probably starve to death more rapidly, again, as their result of their own efficiency. It's no different in freshwater, really. The cast of characters is slightly different, but that's it. The mission that we've assigned these animals is the same. It's all about eliminating algae and detritus in what we consider a natural way. Same with snails. I mean, everyone has their opinion of, you know, what animals are best and how many you should have, you know, X number of this or that per gallon or liter or some other stupid thing like that. It's kind of absurd in my opinion. I mean, really, who's done studies on how much algae an individual snail will consume in nature? Yet we as vendors and hobbyists come up with these exotic formula based on what? What do we base them on? And how much algae can support X number of snails in an aquarium? And for how long? At some point, food supplies will be exhausted with a large population of these animals and residents. And then, then what? I mean, if I were a snail, I wouldn't want to share my 30-gallon tank with 15 other hungry neighbors. I'd just want the space for myself or maybe a few friends of the opposite sex, more food, more fun. And if you can call a snail's life fun, that is. But... That's what I'd want. But we're so worried about algae and detritus that we'll do just about anything to rid ourselves of it, including, unfortunately, devaluing animals' lives in the process. Again, we know my position on detritus. I suppose my position sounds harsh, and I could possibly be viewed as cynical or even a bit hypocritical by some. Yet without sounding like a judgmental asshole buzzkiller, I think that we should carefully consider the implications and the responsibility that goes with these, you know, three for $10 fishes or cheap snails that we've unfairly assigned the role of consumable, much like we would a box of carbon or a filter pad. Now, sure, it goes against the grain of what we might typically think about when we consider these fishes and animals and brings up some ugly, difficult to face truths about our position on the matter. Yet it does deserve lots of consideration. The reality is that every fish which resides in a botanical style aquarium will forage on stuff like detritus, biofilms, fungal growths, and even algae, just like they do in nature. Having these in the aquarium is actually a benefit. Few fishes will function as the sole means of control of these items. That's not their role. It's ours. Choices, responsibility, morals. They're all things that we need to consider when we think about purchasing this fish or any life form, which we designate as a quote-unquote scavenger. Look, I'm not trying to occupy the mile you know, high ground of you know, preaching up here that I'm the guy with the answers. I don't pretend to be that person. I find it a tough call myself. I've killed many of these fishes and animals over the years, needlessly, sort of basking in my ignorance, my stubbornness, and my denial. And I'm merely telling you how I see it now. You may have an entirely different viewpoint and capability or situation. Like so many things in the hobby, it all boils down to making thoughtful, informed decisions to do what we feel is appropriate and acceptable to us. 
and in the best interest of the animals that we keep. It's a challenging balance. So stay thoughtful, stay observant, stay considerate, stay honest, stay compassionate, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from 10 and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The 10.